Thank you very much, everyone. Good morning. Very nice to see you all. Let me say a word of special appreciation to Sarah and her team who look after the children's ministry and uh, Serena doing it before and others who are part of that team. We're deeply grateful for that special ministry. They removed themselves from the life of the uh, congregation at that point and so we are deeply grateful for that faithful ministry. Uh, Thank you, Dennis, for your kind words. Let me say it's been uh, a great thrill to be with you these past five months as I uh, search for uh, words to describe it. It's been both an awesome responsibility. It is a responsibility. We shouldn't uh, ever forget that. But more than that, it's been an experience of enormous joy and pleasure. And I don't say those words lightly. I made them because every time we drive away from here on a Sunday morning, I'm just overwhelmed with a sense of delight and pleasure in God. And so, in a sense, I want to talk to you this morning about finding joy and pleasure in God. Bear that in mind, for it'll take us a little while to get there, but just bear with me. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? Uh, Gracious God, we do ask your blessing upon us. May your Holy Spirit descend on this gathering this morning. We are not here by accident. In your providential ordering of things, each one of us are here this morning because of your leading, your calling, your guiding. And we do pray that we would have open hearts to hear what you want to say through us, through your Holy Spirit this morning and change us and make us the sort of people that you want us to be through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. My friends, uh, this will be the last sermon I preach at uh, at Robertson, at least for a little while. Um, Some of you might be uttering a sense of, well, that's a bit of a relief. But uh, unless I get invited back, of course, at some later later stage. Uh, What do you preach about when you preach your last sermon in a place? I was on one occasion in a church many years ago and I was asked to preach on heaven and hell. Well, that would be a challenging uh, final address, wouldn't it, to preach about heaven and hell. So I'm not going to preach about that this morning, you'll be pleased to know. And uh, I'm not going to return to one of my hobby horses, though we all have hobby horses, most of you know that. The preacher has to be very careful about that. In fact, I uh, want to take my own advice that I've given in this service previously, and that is to take the advice of the Apostle Paul where he farewelled the elders of the church in Ephesus at, a, at the port, the seaside resort called Miletus. This is what he said. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will or counsel of God. Now, that's a great thing for a preacher to think about constantly, not just to tickle people's ears, not to entertain them, uh, but to faithfully preach the whole counsel of God. That's recorded, of course, in Acts chapter 20, if you want to go and read the whole chapter, a very moving chapter. Actually, if you go back a little bit earlier in Acts 20, you have a fuller statement where the Apostle Paul says this, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day until I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews... You know that I have not hesitated, there's that word again, not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have sought to publicly and from house to house to do that. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. That's from Acts 20 verses 18 to 20. You see, it's not enough just to be a spectator around God's people, not just enough to be carried along. We have to do serious business with God ourselves. I think all of you know that. Uh, as uh, Dennis has reminded us this morning, 
Every one of us must do serious business with God in this all-important matter. Turn to God in repentance and put our whole faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, far be it for me to equate myself with the Apostle Paul, his extraordinary uh, example and statement, but we have here a template, uh, a measure, if you like, of what the faithful preacher, the shepherd of the flock, must do. Uh, Don't hesitate to preach the whole counsel of God. Don't hesitate to preach what is truly helpful to the congregation, not just what they'd like to hear, in other words. Don't hesitate to urge people to turn to God in repentance and put their trust in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. So lest I uh, do something of my own choosing, we're going to return to John's Gospel this morning and John chapter 13. We've been looking through John chapter 12 these past few weeks and the introductory cry of the Greeks who came to the apostles and uttered that word, Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. As I described to you, that's the motto of one of the American universities over the pulpit, Sir, we want to see Jesus. So as we come to chapter 13, we're again reminded it was just before Passover time. The commemoration, the feast which commemorated the escape from Egypt and the killing of the Passover lambs which would protect the Israelites from the angel of death as as he passed over the land. Now Jesus is gathered with his disciples for this solemn evening meal as it was being served. There's an intensity about the narrative, one phrase being heaped upon the other and we find ourselves asking what will happen next? First one again reminds us Jesus' awareness of this critical moment, knowing that his hour had come and it would soon be time for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And so it's almost as though there's nothing further to happen. Jesus has come to that critical moment. All that is to be done is to faithfully fulfil that work to the cross and then his work is finished. Everything else would fall into place. The words which leap out of the page here, let me say, are in verse 15 of chapter 13. Following the washing of the disciples' feet, a very powerful symbol of what servant leadership, a servant attitude is all about, and I want you to ponder that very carefully. Following that, Jesus says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly say, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. I've given the title to the sermon this morning, You Should Do What I Have Done. What does it mean to think about doing what Jesus has done, or as we'll see in this passage, what he has commanded to do? Now, this is a primary passage, this chapter 13, and provides the backdrop of all that unfolds in chapters 13 to 17. Some of you know this is a long series of statements, the upper room discourses. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he'll be taken from them. A whole four chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, five chapters, 17, all in a sense intensive teaching to prepare his disciples of what will follow. Jesus has set before us an example that we should do as he has done. I take it that applies to everything that occurs in those five chapters. 
Now, this idea that following Christ is a matter of doing, doing what he has done, can create great confusion. Indeed, we might ask the question, is the Christian life simply a matter of doing? Well, let me say that's one of the great misunderstandings of the whole of the Christian life. If there is a matter of doing, we can never do enough. Nothing in my hand I bring, the hymn writer said, simply to your cross I cling. No, it can't just be a matter of doing. But there is a sense in which when God's Holy Spirit works in us, it should flow out in good works, flow out into a Christ-like life. As uh, Ephesians 2, which Dennis has quoted to us, talks about a bit later, it says, God has prepared for us to outwork his salvation with fear and trembling, put it into practice, not just hear it with our heads, but may it transform our lives and the whole way we behave. Now, I said this chapter of John 13 provides the backdrop against which all that uh, Jesus has to say in these, uh, in these farewell discourses. The foot-washing incident is part of that, a very powerful parabolic symbol, if you like, of how they are to live their lives, but there's so much more here. Let me give you a quick whistle-stop tour through those final chapters. Jesus predicts his betrayal and death. He also prepares for Peter's denial Chapter, uh, chapter 30, verse 31. He comforts his disciples and reminds them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And he reminds them, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He prepares for them for what lies ahead in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, verse 25. And he speaks of the need to abide in him, be closely connected with him in chapter 15. But there's something else here which might escape us, which I think is the antidote to living a life burdened with the sense of of doing, for tragically so many people can feel a burdensome sense of trying to please God by what we do. He speaks about the experience of finding joy in knowing him and serving him. How different that is from this onerous, burdensome sense are trying to please God by our own efforts. He speaks here, woven throughout this passage, and again, if we do a whistle-top tour through it, I'll give that to you in a moment, we see how regularly this is spoken about. Indeed, if we look at the experience of the disciples, and at the end, when Jesus is about to be taken from them, we might ask, what did they make of all this teaching? Did they put it into practice? How did it change their lives? So if we fast forward to Luke 24 and verse 52, the last verse in Luke's gospel, we have something of an answer to that problem, an answer to that question. So this is what we read. Jesus has now risen from the dead. He's about to leave his disciples. The ascension is on centre stage. And this is what Luke records. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and, and, and uh, Bethphage, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. If we ask what difference did all that seven chapter, five chapters of teaching make, he received the experiential difference that it made in their lives. So I want to say to you this morning that A proper response to Jesus and all his teaching, 
all the teaching which we've been thinking about for the last five months, if you like, is to come to a proper sense, a genuine sense of praise and worship. And this will exhibit itself in real joy. Now, what does it mean to experience joy in this way? Is it some sort of hepped-up excitement? Some self-induced artificial enthusiasm? No, of course it's not. Something much more profound than that, and I hope I can answer the question for you in just a moment. It's interesting that uh, the people here are described as full of great joy. This is not a, a, uh, a criticism, let me say, but a question I think you want to ask. What is the joy of the Lord? Do we come along on Sunday and experience the joy of the Lord? Or do we go through the motions, go through the put up with the sermon, struggle off again to face the week? Do we know anything of the true joy of the Lord. For that was the experience of the New Testament Christians, certainly those who we discover in the early stages of the outreach, the early spread of Christianity, a deep sense of abiding joy. Why are our lives so joyless? Let me ask you that question. Uh, A few years ago, while I was still in full-time ministry, I attended a conference run by the northern region of the diocese at which the speaker was Dr Archibald Hart, the Professor of Psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary in California. He's written many books on subjects like stress and recently has devoted a good deal of research into the subject of addictions, something which is a very live issue in our culture, isn't it? The subject of addictions. Um, Studies have revealed that the addictive process, this is what he taught us, taps into certain parts of the brain, known as the brain's pleasure centre or reward centre. In brain physiology, this minute part of the brain cell is called the nucleus accumbens. Don't need to worry about that, but if you want to pursue it, you can look that up. And uh, researchers have been studying this and the dopamine pathways, the pleasure pathways which serve the centre of pleasure in the brain. He made the comment, by the way, that in the United States, the most serious mental illness now affecting women is panic attacks and anxiety attacks. And researchers have conducted experiments on parts of the brain to target this area, known as the control to the fear response. Some people call this the fight or flight factor syndrome. But uh, while these experiments identified the fear centre, what they discovered was it is very close in the brain to the reward centre, the pleasure centre. The pathways associated with it, with what one mediates pleasure, right alongside it is the fear uh, factor. Whether it's the pleasure associated with eating or drinking, sexual pleasure or the way we derive pleasure in the beauty of the world around us, all this taps into this part of the brain. Unfortunately, it's also closely associated with addictive practices. What happens here is that the pathways, when people are addicted, the pathways in the brain leading to the pleasure centre are flooded with certain chemicals and so on, which inhibits the ability of the individual to experience proper, healthy pleasure. With addiction... Whatever form it takes, you need more and more stimulation to create the same effect or a condition called anhedonia 
What happens is with the pleasure to mind-altering drugs is that the pleasure centre is hijacked and the ability to experience healthy pleasure, normal pleasure in a healthy way is diminished. The best example of this, of course, is the terrible drug cocaine, which goes straight to the pleasure centre, flooding the dopamine pathways with an instant hit of pleasure. And we wonder why people have gone down this path, their lives completely unravel. Of course, you don't have to be addicted to mind-altering drugs to get into this downward spiral. Addiction can take many forms, and there are many hidden addictions. Indeed, uh, addiction has been defined as anything that blocks the passage to your pleasure centre, the normal healthy pathway to your pleasure centre. Bill Perkins, in his book, Fatal Attractions, uh, lists food, sex, codependency, exercise, negativism, workaholism, as all various forms of addiction. So what are we to do if we are not to be seduced by these fatal attractions and how can we recover a real sense of joy or, as I've described it, pleasure? Now, in a previous sermon, I referred to you to uh, John Piper's work. Some of you know of John Piper's writing and particularly his uh, intense interest in Psalm 16 and verse 12. This is the sort of psalm we should read every morning, beginning of the day. Psalm 16, verse 12 says this, You have shown me, this is God, you have shown me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there is pleasure forevermore. Isn't that an amazing statement when you think about it? When we focus our attention on God, walk closely with him, as John 15 says, abiding in Christ, we discover this deep joy or pleasure, a proper sense of pleasure, a God-ordained sense of pleasure. For there, our wonderful God has intended certain wonderful things for pleasure. But tragically, our culture has hijacked that in the most terrible and destructive way. So what is this proper sense of pleasure? <clears throat> I've been reflecting on this, and some years ago I had a, a, uh, a preacher come and speak on the letter to the Philippians at a church weekend. The whole theme of the letter is about joy. Go and read Philippians if you want to get cheered up. It's all about joy. So as I reflected on this, what the Bible calls the joy of the Lord... I began to have an uncanny feeling. I don't think we're very much in touch with this. I think we need to do some more work on this. If the pathways to the, that part of the brain called the pleasure centre are flooded with secret addictions, is it any wonder that we have ceased to experience the joy, the delight, the pleasure of God, the pleasure he wants us to enjoy? So here we are on my last Sunday, and uh, I want you to think about this theme. I don't want people to go away feeling miserable. Some people say my sermons are terribly challenging. I don't know quite what that means, but you can make what you will of that. But I want you to go away with a, a special delight in God, the wonder of knowing him, the exceedingly great pleasure of trusting him and serving him, and especially for the life of this wonderful parish. The disciples returned on that, on that ascension morning, worshipping him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, from my reading of the scriptures and the writings of the great ones of old, the basis of God-given pleasure 
This joy in life which we find in God is not some guesswork. In fact, in these wonderful chapters, John 13 through to 17, it's regularly mentioned. By the way, don't for a moment buy into the lie that God is some sort of killjoy. That's what the secular culture would try and tell us. God just wants you to be miserable. No, it's nothing like that. That's, the, that's a lie from the pit of hell. So don't believe it. God is not some sort of killjoy. There are many things that our great and wonderful God has provided which are intended for pleasure. As Jesus was preparing to leave his disciples and meet with them in the upper room in this great passage, we gauge something of the importance of this theme. His teaching to them begins with the powerful example of the foot washing and continues right through to the end of chapter 17. I take it that the foot washing is the beginning point of experiencing joy. Not focusing on me, not the most important person in the world is me, but a life devoted to serving others, even in the most menial ways. I take it that's why this incident is there right at the beginning of this section. Very important we grasp that if we understand what true joy is about. What the Apostle wants us to grasp is that Jesus himself communicates this joy and it now becomes the result of a deep fellowship between the church and the Lord Jesus. A couple of chapters further on from our reading this morning, we read that passage, to abide or remain in his love, John 15. He goes on to say, John 15, 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete, John 15, 11. In the core part of the next chapter, speaking of the opposition they'll encounter from the world, because of him, he develops this even further. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, verse 20. And using the example of a woman in labour, uh, he tells them when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy. Verse 21 goes on. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one takes away your joy. And Jesus climaxes his appeal with those well-known words, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Verse 24. And in his epilogue, as the shadow of the cross falls across this little gathering, he prays to his father in the words, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you might have, listen, the full measure of my joy within them. That was the prayer to his father for them, and I take it's the prayer to his father for us here today. Now this is an amazing stress on the idea that God wants his followers to experience real joy. Not some counterfeit, not the pleasure induced by resorting to mind-altering drugs or alcohol or getting on the slippery slide of other secret addictions. What the Bible means in both the Old and New Testaments is something quite different. Joy is consistently the mark of God's people, individually and collectively. It is a quality, not simply an emotion, and uh, grounded upon God himself and derived from him. Now we can go further than this. It is the quality which characterises the life of the Christian here on earth and anticipates that wonderful day in the future, the joy of being with Christ forever in the kingdom of heaven. 
So as we come to this Sunday, my last Sunday with you, beginning of a new year, beginning of a new ministry, I wonder if this is something we can cultivate, determined to experience in a fresh and vital way, know the joy of the Lord guiding us. It's a choice, you see. We need to refresh our minds with these great truths, the truths of God, the truths revealed to us in Christ, refresh our spirits. But how can we recover this sense of deep, lasting joy? If the Bible carries the meaning of to be excited as well as the sense of intense joy, how do we recover this? How can we know the secret of happiness, as Dr Billy Graham called it in his book? So let me finish this morning with the way to recover real joy. I want to leave you with three things as I finish this morning, which hope will point you in the right direction. We need to turn to the Apostle Paul to get some clarity on these three principles. The first is this. When people come to know and experience Christ in a real way, they have an overwhelming sense of joy. When there's been a genuine, authentic conversion, there can be no doubt that people experience an intense sense of joy. The new birth, just like when a new baby's born. The wonder of the new birth. New believers in Thessalonica, but Paul wrote to, he calls them our glory and joy, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 19 and 20. When people make progress in the Christian faith, that too is a cause of joy. Those of you who minister with people and you see them discovering some great new truth or putting something into practice, taking a courageous decision, that too is often accompanied by great joy. John Bunyan, in his classic The Pilgrim's Progress, depicts his hero, Christian, with a great load on his back, seeking to find salvation. And in his dream, discovering the cross, this is what Bunyan writes, then was Christian glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life, by his death. And he stood still a while and looked and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross thus ease him of his burden. The great joy of the Christian is to hear those words, your sins are forgiven. That is what we are now. If we trust in Jesus Christ, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, sealed with God's Holy Spirit, that will guarantee that he will complete the work that he has begun in us. So if you want to recover a real sense of joy, allow your thoughts to dwell on these things. Ask yourself that probing question. Have I made the most important decision of all in life of turning from a self-determined life and turning to Christ in repentance and faith? Secondly, Christian joy can be, uh, can be, uh, be the outcome of suffering, even persecution since it is produced by the Lord and not by ourselves or our circumstances. The Apostle Peter writes, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4.13 Jonathan Chow, an authority on the church in China, has commented that, that Christians in the People's Republic of China are to consider suffering for Christ an essential evidence of real faith. The Apostle James can go so far as to say, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. James 1 verse 2. 
Many Christians in the West, sadly, consider it their entitlement to be totally happy, free from any form of discomfort. But the early followers of Jesus in the first three centuries of the Christian church believed that suffering was a necessary part of the Christian life and evidence of true faith. When adversity overtakes you, it may not be pleasant, but you have a choice. Will I respond in deeper faith and trust in Christ, or will I be angry and resentful? I have a book which I've appeared, which I've shared with many people over the years, written by Frank Minerth and uh, his colleague, called Happiness is a Choice, a brilliant book which addresses some fundamental aspects of how we find real joy, real pleasure, even in adverse circumstances. Coming out of the Mime and Earth Clinic in Minneapolis, it is a powerful antidote to feelings of helplessness that can overtake people when they are suffering pain and adversity. That's the second thing. And thirdly, joy is clearly the gift of the Holy Spirit. As the disciples saw Jesus departed from them at the ascension and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, maybe they too were calling to mind the promises made in the upper room, those amazing five chapters. He assured them that the Holy Spirit, when he came, would turn their grief into joy. John 16, 20 to 22. Turn their grief into joy. When we allow the Holy Spirit to be the controlling influence in our lives, then we can see this amazing transformation begin to take place. When we truly respond to God in love, the love of God, and we reciprocate that love, he loves us and we love him above all else, we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit being evidence in our lives. In what Paul wrote in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. The fruit or the evidence of God truly at work in a person's life, they are the marks, love, joy, peace. But, of course, this is a gift which can be gratefully received or alternatively declined. The flow of the gift from the Holy Spirit can be interrupted by sin, just as the flow of those good feelings to our pleasure centre in the brain can be inhibited by destructive practices. For that reason, every believer is called upon to share in the joy of Christ by following a daily walk with him. As the children's song put it so well this morning, regularly reading the Bible, nurturing our spirits by the truth of God contained in his holy word. We need to develop our relationship with him, rejoicing in what it means to follow him and be partakers in the salvation which he has secured. There's a piece of uh, beautiful Christian music by, written by Chris Tomlin, some of you might know of, which I recalled again this week. And the opening verse simply says this, We stand and lift up our hands, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. We bow down and worship him now, how great and awesome he is. My friends, that ought to be the mark of all of our gatherings as we gather together, finding the joy of the Lord in our gathering and in our daily walk with him. I pray that God continues to bless and encourage you as you serve him in this place for his honour and glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, gracious God, for every part of your word. 
We are reminded that your word is written for our learning. It is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It convicts and converts. And we pray that you'll continue to cause your holy word to do that searching, transforming work in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.